22. Luke chapter 22. At Peter's proclamation that he would follow Jesus to prison and to death, Jesus said in verse 34, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. Ben, thank you for leading us in our singing this morning. You know, one of the great privileges of being able to be a preacher is you get to stand up in front of everybody. And, and you may not think that's a privilege, but one of the privileges of that is you just get to see people. You, you, you get to see people and, and just various thoughts that fire off in your brain about different people and about what's going on in their life. Uh, little, little Lakin Perkins over here, three years old today. And she didn't hear a word I said, but she's three years old today, right? And Miss Sharon Rachel's had a birthday yesterday, and she's more than three years old, but we're not going to talk about it, right? I, I look around the room, and, and I see so many people that are... You're fighting battles, you're fighting wars, and some, some of them are very, very public, and some of them are very private, but, but you're, you're fighting a fight every day in your life. I look around this room, and, and I, see, I see different people that are... You're fighting for other people. You're, you're highly invested in the lives of other people and caring for them and putting arms around them and, and, and so many things that I just can't even mention this morning. That's a blessing. And sometime, sometime just look around the room. Okay? Uh, not my whole sermon, but if I ever have a boring point, maybe once a year I might have one boring point or something like that, just, just look around the room. And just look at people's faces and, and think about people's lives and understand that we're a part of a body. We're a part of the church. We're a part of a church that belongs to Jesus Christ. We're a part of a church that there was a mighty price paid so that we could be a part of this church. The blood of Jesus Christ. And that's a blessing for every one of us who are here. You know, every sermon that we have had this whole year, as our theme has been walking, walking with Christ, and every, every sermon on Sunday morning has been something about the life of Jesus Christ. Well, every sermon has led us to this sermon. I've been thinking about this sermon for well over a year now, and trying to build up to it, trying to set the scene for it, and... I had this thought when I got up this morning, I'm not ready to preach this sermon. I, I just, I don't have the words. But I hope this morning, I hope that you'll catch a glimpse of the passion of Jesus Christ, of who He was, of why He came, of what this is really all about. This is not, listen, this is not about having a party. We're going to have parties. We've been having parties. We're going to have parties. That's not what this is about. This is not about, you know, just feeling good and having the perfect family. I hope you have the perfect family and I hope you feel good. But that's not what it's about. It's about sin. A sin that has separated us from our Heavenly Father. My sin and your sin. And it's about a sacrifice that was made. 
Not so we could just come here and put on our best clothes and smile at each other. Wonderful, but that, that's not why this happens. It's to save our souls. And everything that we do, everything that we do because everything that Christ did has to come back to that. If it doesn't, if it doesn't touch that in some way, then what are we doing? We need to remember that. As we preach, as we teach, as we share, as we fellowship, as we comfort, as we encourage, as we do all of those things, it all comes back to what happens on the cross where Jesus Christ dies. But He doesn't just die in the flesh. The Son of God, Deity, God in the flesh, becomes sin, takes on my sin and your sin, takes on the penalty of that sin so that I don't have to. And I'm telling you, I don't have the words, nor do I even truly have the understanding to express the depth of what we are going to see at this, in many ways, a climactic moment, not just in the life of Jesus, but in the history of the world. That's what we come to this morning. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about this Passion Week. And last Sunday, we, we talked about Jesus in the garden as He was there and He was praying, as the soldiers came to carry Him away, as they had a, a, a mock trial in the middle of the night and He went to Annas' house and Caiaphas' house, as He ultimately went on that Friday morning to stand before the Sanhedrin. Last Sunday night, we talked about after the Sanhedrin had, had decided, this man is a blasphemer because he claimed what? Because he claimed the truth because He claimed to be the Son of God, because He claimed to be God in the flesh, He was a blasphemer to them. He needed to die. And so they take Him before Pilate, and Pilate, has, Pilate says there's nothing wrong with this man, but the people are obstinate. The, the people continue to cry out, we want Him to pay. We want Him to pay for what He's done, for how He's upset our whole system, for how He's upset our churches and our synagogues, for how He's upset our nation. This man needs to be silenced. And Pilate, Pilate tries to appease the people. He beats Jesus half to death. This man, he thinks that that will appease them. And we talk about, about that scourging. And, and, and we come to a point, we come to a point that this morning where Jesus, although he has not gone to the cross, is almost dead. I mean, he's been beaten within an inch of his life. His body would have been a mangled, a, a, a bloody mess at this point. And, and I don't, I truthfully, I don't have any other way to express this. You know, I, I was very tempted this morning, and, and, and if you've not seen it, if you've not seen it, watch, watch the movie, The Passion of the Christ. You know, I, I almost showed a, a clip, like five minutes of that this morning, and I just kept thinking, that's just too much. I, I, I don't know if we can do that. And at the same point, I was like, but, but, but I want us to understand it is too much. I want us to get that point. And, and if you've never... You take in your own time. Because they do such a great job of capturing the essence of what's going on. The pilot finally releases this man who's happy. He says, you, you go and you, you take him. And the Bible says, the Bible says in, in the book of John, in John chapter, chapter 19 and verse 16, so He then delivered Him to them. Pilate delivered Jesus 
to the Jewish leaders to be crucified. And I seriously doubt if anyone in this room understands really what that means. Probably no one in this room has ever seen someone be crucified. Most of you in this room have never seen someone be beat to death. But to the, but to the, but to the original hearers of these words, they would have understood all too well what this meant. What crucifixion was. And so they took Jesus therefore and went out bearing His own cross. And Jesus begins to make His way to that, to that place called Golgotha, to that place called Calvary, the place of the skull. And He carries His own cross. Probably just the crossbar. Probably most men couldn't carry, couldn't carry a, a, an entire cross, probably maybe weighing four or five hundred pounds, but he would carry his own, his own crossbar that he would be nailed to. You've seen it in movies where people are told to dig their own grave. You carry your own gun to, 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 that's going to murder you. That's what you're to carry. You need to understand Jesus couldn't do it. Why couldn't he do it? Why couldn't he do it? Because he was beaten sick. He was almost dead. And so we read in, in, in Mark's Gospel about the fact that the Roman soldiers, and the Romans could do this, this, this man Simon the Cyrene who was passing by, they could just say, hey, you, you come here and you help him. And he was compelled to do that. And so they take him, they take him to that place, that place of the skull, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha. We, we, Golgotha is not a very pleasant sounding word. So in, we, we use the Latin word, don't we? I don't think I don't know any songs about Golgotha. We use the Latin Calvary, but when you hear those words Golgotha, Calvary, the place of the skull, it's all talking about the same place. It's all talking about this place that people would go to be crucified. As a matter of fact, if you go to Jerusalem today, you can go to these places. These are very real places. These are not made up stories. If you go to Jerusalem. One of the places that is a place called Gordon's Calvary. And they think the rock formations, I don't know if you can see the face of a skull in there or not, but some people think that this is the place where Jesus was crucified. They think so because of the rocks. And there's also, some of you, actually some of you probably have visited the garden tomb. The traditional Protestant location of the death and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It sets for a great visual. Probably not where Jesus died. Matter of fact, the, the tradition for this only goes back, if you trace it all the way back as far as it'll go, it goes back to about 1849. That's really not that far along when we talk about 200, or we talk about 2,000 years. If you go off the beaten path, you can come to a place, you can come to this, this church building called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. One of the interesting things about the second and the third and the fourth centuries is that all one of the great Catholic traditions was to go to these great and these these important places. They built church buildings there. They built church buildings in these places. As a matter of fact, the tradition for the for the, the Holy Grave, the, the, the Holy Sepulcher, goes back to about the second century, all the way back almost to the time to the time of Christ. And you can go in those places and you can, you can stand in these places. And I just tell you this to understand that they're, that they're very real places. And Jesus went to a very real place. And His body 
was very real and very bloody. John 18, 19 and verse 18 says, And there they crucified Him. And with Him two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. I mentioned earlier that, that most of us have never seen this, but, but we've heard descriptions, and I don't want our whole, I don't want our whole lesson this morning to, to focus on the cruelty of the crucifixion, because, because Jesus was not the only person to ever be crucified in the history of the world. As a matter of fact, in some sadistic sort of way, there are probably more painful ways to die, but this was a terrible way to die. This was a terrible way to die as that beam that He had carried with Him uh, all the way to, to, that, to that place, to that hill, to that Mount Calvary. He would have been placed on the ground and grown men would have taken His arms and they would have stretched them out and they would have, they would have hammered those nails. They would have hammered those nails into His wrists, into, into His hand, if you will. Can you picture that? Can you picture what, what that would feel like? Have you ever poked yourself with a knife for just a moment? Not the little nails that they would drive in. When I was in my mother's here this morning, and I know she would tell the story when I was a kid, I went to a youth row, and they gave out little nails for us to carry around to remind us of, of, of the crucifixion of Christ. And I don't remember it, but she, she says I put a hole in every pair of jeans I had with that nail. That's not what it was something more akin to a railroad spike that an executioner, someone who was proficient, someone who did this for a living, would take and they would pull that man's hand out and they would hammer them in right into the flesh. One hand and then the other with just a few strokes, iron into flesh. And they would take that, that beam that he was nailed to and they would secure it to the upright pole and then they would, bend, they would bend the victim's knees. And you see that in, in pictures. There's always a little bend to, to, to the knee. There's always a, a little bend there. And then they would nail their feet. And they did that so that they couldn't just hang. You couldn't just hang there. You, couldn't, you had to push. You could never get comfortable. There would either be weight on your feet or weight on your hands. The knees were bent to keep you hanging there. John Franklin Carter described crucifixion as the cruelest, the most torturous, the most humiliating, and most horrible manner of execution practiced in ancient times. And they crucified people. Not because they, there wasn't another way to kill someone. Because they were making a point. They were making a point to those who would break the law and those who would, who would, who would dare to break the law. Don't break the law or this terrible thing will happen to you. And the Romans, although it was quite common in the ancient world, the Romans are the ones who perfected crucifixion as a form of tor torture, as a form of punishment that was designed to bring about an incredibly slow death with the maximum pain and suffering. Some people could last on the cross for up to two to three days. Typically it was determined by what sort of shape they were in before they went there. Of course, Jesus, we've already said, was almost dead when He went to the cross. The real pain came as they would try to lift themselves and their body, 
the nerves would, as they would try to lift themselves to, to, to breathe. And they would push against those, those nails. I remember, I remember when I cut my finger off about a year and a half ago. And here's what I remember. I didn't want anybody to touch it. Don't touch it. Stay away from it. Don't move on it. Don't breathe on it. One wound. We're talking about wounds that are much more severe, going, going through a much, much larger portion of the body. Not one, not two, three. Always, constantly. Not someone breathing on it, but the full weight of a man's body coming to bear upon it. Slow and constant loss of blood. And most people died on the cross not from the pain, not even from the blood loss. Most people suffocated on the cross because they couldn't breathe. And in order to breathe, they had to pull themselves up and that was incredibly painful. And over time, their body just couldn't pull themselves up anymore. And each breath would become increasingly agonizing and tiring. See, all this is going on on the cross all of this is happening and, and all around Jesus are the people. You know, when you hurt, sometimes you just want to hurt by yourself and you want to go in a dark room and nobody around. Jesus is out there laid bare for all to see. The soldiers are there and they're, and they're not just there to make sure no one gets Him down from there. They're, they're gambling over His clothes and they're mocking Him and they're saying things about Him. In Mark 15 and verse 19 or 29, the Bible says that those who passed by, they hurled abuses at Him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. Matthew 27, the Bible says that they hollered at Jesus and they said, Well, if you are the Son of God, then come down from the cross. You've made such great claims. You've done so many wonderful things. But here you are, just like anyone else, helpless. You claim to be God. You know, throughout the New Testament, the Bible will talk about the foolishness of preaching the cross. The foolishness. Because to the Gentile mind, who would ever, who would ever picture God being crucified by man? What kind of a God is that? What kind of a God is that? What kind of a hero is that? That's why they said it was foolishness. This is not the creation of man. But I want you to understand that as He, as he hung on the cross, it was God. It was God. One of the reasons I would say it was God is what we read about later. And his response as, as someone who we sing, and he could have called the tens of thousands of angels. He could have destroyed the world. He could have done more than called 10,000 angels. He could have come down from that cross. He could have healed his wounds. He could have felt no pain. He could have went back to heaven and said, forget about all of you. I mean, completely justified in doing that. But the Bible says, the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2, what I find to be one of the most amazing statements in all of, the, all of the Bible. And one that challenges me on almost a daily basis. The Bible says, And while He was being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered no threats, but He kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. What a man. What a, what a man. 
who could, but he didn't. It was not a lack of power. It was not a lack of strength. I want you to understand that when Jesus hung on that cross and He didn't say even a word, let alone do something, let alone call 10,000, He didn't say a word to them. Friends, that's God hanging on that tree. And they mocked Him. And they mocked Him further. They mocked Him further. And they said in Matthew 27, He saved others. Right? That's who you say you are. He saved others, but He cannot save Himself. And they didn't even understand how true that statement was. It's not a statement about His power in reality. And He could not save Himself because He was saving others. That's why He stayed. That's why He took it. That's why He endured it. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that Jesus looked out at the people who had driven the nails into His hand, who had broken His body, who had spit in His face, who had mocked Him. He looked at His own creation who had done all of those things and were hollered out for Him to be crucified over the criminals. And He said, Father, forgive them. Forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Friends, if you're not challenged by those words this morning, you probably don't understand those words this morning. For we look at life and we look at situations that ought not be. We look at things that are unfair. We look at people that are unkind. We look at people who have hurt us and harmed us and they do not have our best interest in mind. And we say, how will I respond to those people? You know who they are, don't you? Respond like Jesus responded. Pray for them. Plead for them. For their forgiveness. Jesus did not hang on the cross and wink at sin, but He prayed for His enemies. He loved His enemies. He even died for His enemies. And the Bible says that at around noon, at around noon, everything became dark. There are things in the history of the world I would like to see. I would like to know what this was like. But it was the middle of the day. It was high noon. It was not an eclipse. Understand, this is, this is Passover. This is the full moon. Eclipses don't happen naturally during the full moon. The Bible says that darkness came over the land. Can you picture being there? I mean, it's going to be an emotional time already, isn't it? It's going, to, it's going to be a gruesome time and all of a sudden, everything goes dark. You ever have those, those days in the spring where it's nice and beautiful outside and all of a sudden, these dark clouds come over and it looks like it's the middle of the night outside? Because a storm is coming. This wasn't just a storm. This wasn't something that would pass. This was for hours and hours. Darkness fell over the land at the sixth hour until the ninth hour from almost noon until around three o'clock. And at the ninth hour, the Bible says in Matthew 27 that Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, omni sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And those are the words that I marvel. And that I wish we had the words to understand the depth of. 
Because I believe that in those words we have a glimpse into the very real suffering of Jesus Christ. It is more than a man whose body is bleeding. It is more than a man who is experiencing excruciating pain. Because the real suffering at the cross came when He paid the price for you and for me, for my sin, for your sin, for their sin. When the most holy man who'd ever lived on the face of the world took the penalty for all the sin of the world, Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's what happened on the cross. You see, everyone in this room has a sin problem. There's some good people in this room. But they have a sin problem. I have a sin problem. And you have a sin problem. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. It's not talking about physical death. It's talking about spiritual death. Spiritual death which is hellfire. It is condemnation for all of eternity. That's what we deserve. And the Bible paints this picture throughout the scheme of redemption of God's work to keep us from having to pay that price. Of God's work to keep you and to keep me and our children and our grandchildren from having to actually feel the burden of the pain that they deserve. That's what's going on here. And the truth that every individual on the face of the world for the history of the world must come to understand is that in the end, someone is going to die. Someone is going to pay the price for my sin and your sin. And that person is either me or it is Jesus. I get to choose. Jesus says, I'll die for you. I will be the propitiation. I will be the sacrifice in your place. That's what's going on at the cross. He's saving us. I love what David prayed in the Lord's Supper where he talked about our Christ. He's not just the Christ. He's our Christ. He's our Savior. He's saving us because He's paying a debt. Friends, He's paying a debt that He did not owe. He's paying a debt that we could never pay. That's what's going on when we picture Jesus on the cross. And the Bible says in John 19 that when Jesus received the sour wine, He said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. It is finished. It is the end. It is the end of the finest life that has ever been lived on the face of the world. It is the end, friends. It is the end of the finishing of a work of human redemption that began all the way in the book of Genesis when the first sin came into the world. Everything has been building and working towards this point. Every prophet, every member of the priesthood, every lamb that was slaughtered, every, every offering that was offered up, it was all about this. This is what it's been leading towards. It is finished. The hopes and the dreams and the works of the patriarchs and the prophets and the promised land that, they, that, that many thought were fulfilled in Canaan, but Canaan was, only, Canaan was only a type. 
a type of a promised land that now we could enter into. It is finished. It is a cry of victory. It is a cry of accomplishment, friends, and it is too a cry of relief that He had done what He came to do. The Bible says that it was at that moment, as darkness continued to fill the land, that a great earthquake shook that place. And that earthquake, it opened up the tombs. And we read about it, but can you... Can we picture that in our mind? Can you picture what would happen in your mind this morning if this room, just this room, went completely dark and it just started to shake and everything started to vibrate and everything started to shake and the holes would open up in the floor? That's what happened on that day. The Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, had just died on the cross that's why when those soldiers looked up and they saw what was happening and they knew, they knew what had been said, in a mocking way they had placed the sign above Him, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. They knew who He claimed to be. And now they were seeing these things. That's why they said, truly, this man was the Son of God. What have we done? Luke 23 says that all the crowds who had came together for this spectacle... They come to see the show. They come to see this man die. They come to jeer to jeer at him. They come to holler and they come to mock him. They come for the spectacle. They come for the show. When they observe what has happened, they began to return to their homes, beating their breasts. What does that say? What have we done? What have we done? And surely this must have helped to set the scene. We haven't even got to the resurrection, folks. But this must have helped to set the scene for what would happen some 50 days later, 40 days later, when Peter would preach on the day of Pentecost and the church would be established. As this was going on, and the darkness filled the land, and the earthquake shook the land, and the graves began to be open in the temple... Remember we read about the temple? Most of us read about the temple when we read about the construction of the tabernacle. But you remember how, how the temple had, had, had that place, that holy place? Where they would go in and they would make offerings and they would make sacrifices. But there was another place. The dwelling place of God. Sometimes we call it the most holy place. Some of our Bibles call it the holy of holies. Right? Because in Hebrew, there's not a really good way to express that. So let's just say it over and over. It's the holy, holy place. The holy of holies. You see, you never got to go there. Remember? Only one man got to go into the holiest place one day, one time a year to offer that sacrifice. It was not a place for people like you. It's not a place for people like me. It was not a place for hardly anyone to go was into the very presence of God. And in that temple, as those priests were going about their daily duties, the Bible says that that veil that we read about, that veil that separated the holy place from the most, from the most holy place, that that veil was torn in two. 
Friends, I hope that we see the symbolism of what happened on the cross of Calvary. I hope that we understand the point that was made by our God when that veil was torn in two. That place that you could not go. Now all could come. Now all could go. That law of requirements that was contrary to us, that was against us, that no man could keep, that system of works, Colossians 2 tells us it was nailed to the cross. It's no more. It's no more. The way to God had been open to all mankind. And so the Bible speaks of people like you and people like me as a priesthood of believers. We, we see people and they talk about clergy and laity, right? There are these special people and some people get special parking spots at the hospital and stuff like that. But, but the laity, they're the common folks. That's most of you guys. Friends, I want you to understand that shouldn't be so. Jesus died so that that wouldn't be so. So there would not be clergy and laity. So there would not be priests and the people but that we would all be priests and that we would all be people who could come and come before our God. That's what happened when Jesus shed His blood on the cross. And we make claims today to be a Christian. There is no greater claim that you can make. You may say a lot of things about your life. You may have accomplishments. You may have plaques. You may have awards. You may have money. You may have whatever. But to stand up and say, you are a Christian. You are a part of the church that Jesus Christ established. There is no greater claim you can make. There is no greater claim. There is nothing to be held on to with more ferocity, with more passion, with more zeal than your relationship with Jesus Christ. Do not turn loose of that because Jesus Christ died so that you could have it. Paul spoke to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. And you remember what he told them? As he told them to be on guard, be on guard for the flock that the Holy Spirit had made them overseers of, to shepherd the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. May we understand that we are a part of a blood-bought institution. Not the blood of a man alone, but the blood of the Son of God Himself. This body, the Savannah Church of Christ, the people in Savannah that belong to the body that belongs to Christ, this is not a social club. This is not the Rotary. It is not Kiwanis. It is not Lions. It is not. Uh, it is. It is not. What? A, all those things are wonderful things, but they didn't cost the blood of Jesus Christ. We have to understand that. That's what went on. It's not just this story that we wear these necklaces and little pins and, and, and we put a picture up. When we come together on the first day of the week, He says, you come together and you do this and you remember. You remember that you were bought with the blood of Jesus. That you are a Christian because of the blood of Christ. The passion. The passion of Jesus Christ that gave His life so that we might have life. And so we extend the invitation. 
We extend the invitation for people to be baptized. Listen, I'm not just asking you to come and be baptized. Paul said in Romans 6 and verse 3 that we come to be baptized into His death. We don't just come to make a confession of sin. We come to have, well, Revelation 1 and verse 5, our sins washed away in His blood. Everything, everything about being a Christian goes back to that mountain, to that hilltop, to that old rugged cross, to Golgotha, to Calvary, to that blood that was shed. i got a list of names here this morning. I don't have all the names, I don't think, of people things that I don't know about. I want to read a list of names to you. Then we'll close. Kathy Wakefield. Haley Stockton. Colton Alexander. Wesley Hazel. Eleanor Taylor. Morgan Richardson. Ann Scott. Pam Castile. Adam Droke. Jason Lamont, Shantina Frazier, Brittany Love, Hollis Taylor, Monica Ditto, Kathy Hargrove, Sherry Hargrove, Ann Strickland, Greg Hamlin, Patty Pride, Debbie Bryant, Mark Kennedy, Kim Davis, Katie Grace Coleman, Kay Williams, Jimmy Williams, Gail True, Ryan Smotherman, Daniel Smotherman, Mercedes Smotherman, Yasmin Wright, Michael Smotherman, Chandler Harris, Daniel Floyd, Stephen Droke, Sage Stockton, Lucy Burgess, Angie Hatch, Vicki Madsen, Megan Williams, Janet Fletcher, Hollis Taylor, Amanda Davidson, Monica Ditto, Wendy Nix, Joyce Newton Benson, Luke Roach, Debbie Terry, Morgan Willoughby, John Roach, Dwayne Wright, Steve Worley, Adam Droke. You know what those names are? They're the names of people who have publicly responded to the invitation, the invitation of Jesus Christ in this last year. They're the names of people who believed who believed that the death of Jesus Christ could actually change their life. The people who believed that they could receive forgiveness of sins that they had committed. They're the names of people who believe there is power in the blood of Jesus Christ. There are people who believe that there is strength to be received from the grace of our Lord and our Savior. They are the names of people who fight fiercely 
for the body of Christ and their relationship in that body. Friends, as you reflect upon what Jesus has done for you, I hope and I pray that you will join them in that battle. Why don't you do that this morning as we stand and sing?